Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. But really, remember your responsibility to the public. And people, unfortunately, read a tweet and read a headline and run with it. They might not make it past the first or second paragraph of your story. So you got to be very careful. If the COVID-19 pandemic has taught newsrooms anything, it's that misinformation involving issues of health can spread quickly and have dire consequences. It also reminds all of us to do our due diligence when it comes to checking facts and how we share information. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Nassim Miller is a health reporter who has written for a number of newspapers and medical trade publications on a variety of topics ranging from correctional health care to clinical trials. In 2021, Nassim joined the journalist resource at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard Kennedy School, where she recently wrote a piece about diversity sourcing when interviewing nurses. Nassim is also one of the founders of Journalists Covering Trauma, a Facebook group which actually I'm a member of and is a really great thing. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. But Nassim, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little about yourself. How did you become a journalist? You know, how did you become a journalist who's covering health and medical issues? So I think like a lot of health and medical journalists, I, I guess some of them at least, I didn't set out to be a journalist. I wanted to do research and specifically I wanted to do research in genetics because I found it really fascinating so, and when you are an undergrad in science, you usually do summer internships in, you know, your professor's laboratories. And I had two summers, I interned at two different laboratories, and I absolutely hated every minute of it. Because it's, you know, research is very tedious, you got to be patient, you got to shop at the middle of the night to check on your petri dishes and fruit flies. And there is a high rate of failure, of course. And it was just not my personality. But, you know, I was in my senior year by the time I decided I didn't want to be a scientist. And I was lucky that I had an epidemiology class where a professor made us read the Tuesday Science Times at the New York Times. And when I started reading that section, which still comes out, I realized, you know what, I could write about science and talk to a lot of smart people without having to do science. And the question was, well, how do I write? Because I had no background in journalism or writing. So I went to our, you know, student newspaper and told them what I could write about. Like I have a science column for you all. And they're like, that's a great idea. And I started writing and my first article actually was in first person. And I remember my editor, who was really great and supportive, you know, kind of guide me as to, you know, the journalistic style of writing and reporting. And I really learned the basics in that student newspaper, doing profiles on my professors and writing about some of the research that was happening or was coming from elsewhere. From there, I, and I don't know if this conference still happens or not, but back in the day, there was the conference called Unity. I don't know if you remember, like different uh, journalism groups got together. And I went to one of those and I met folks at the Kaiser Family Foundation and they had this great summer internships where they linked journalists to the health section of different newspapers. You got to spend the summer at the health section as an intern, which was great for me since I was not a journalism major 
I really didn't have the clips and the body to have interned anywhere. So I was very fortunate to get that Kaiser Family Foundation internship. And I was matched with the Washington Post. So I spent the summer there in the health section, which was pretty robust at that time. From there, I got my first job at a small paper in Muncie, Indiana, and I was a health reporter. And after that, I continued getting health reporting jobs, which, and I consider myself very lucky to be able to stick with that. Cause I remember when I was starting, a lot of people are like, oh no, you got to start from GA. There's no way you can start from health, but I managed to find jobs in health and I squeezed in science whenever I could. And I sort of attribute a little bit of that to having studied science and health related stuff in college. So I always advise young journalists to add, if they're journalism majors, to add some electives that are an area of interest for them that's outside of journalism to help them with their future reporting. Because even having that basic knowledge will help you establish a good conversation with the experts in the field. For sure. And I think that, you know, for example, that you you got that internship through the, the Kaiser Family Foundation. I mean, I'm sure they recognize the importance of having someone who has a understanding of science and health be able to take, you know, recognize stories that are very impactful and then be able to turn them around and write them in a way that, that people can understand them and inst- understand why they're, they're important. So how did you end up at the Journalist Resource? Up to the beginning of last year, 2021, I was the health reporter at the Orlando Sentinel. And this job, really a friend forwarded to me and I applied, I got it. So really at the time I was so like a lot of health reporters, a lot of reporters today in local papers, I was just buried in covering daily news and I wasn't really looking And I was receiving, of course, uh, we have a weekly newsletter at the Journalist Resource, and I was receiving their newsletters, and I found them super helpful. And it really appealed to me because it not only helped me stay in journalism, but also I really like helping other reporters and explaining things. So it really brought a lot of things together for me. I'm very fortunate I got the job, and I've been really enjoying it in the past year. I know there are a lot of journalists who found themselves becoming health reporters in a way when, you know, the COVID pandemic began and they're still writing about it and the impact on the communities. What observations do you have about the way COVID was covered or has been covered over the last couple of years? I think we all really did our best. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I think along the way we have learned a lot, I think a lot more reporters are aware of the scientific process and how things change and it's not perfect and it's constantly evolving. I think a lot of us learned about preprints, which we never covered before, really. You know, we, as journalists, we usually kind of covered these published peer-reviewed studies And then came all of a sudden, because of the urgency to share research, these servers that host preprints, which is pretty much research manuscripts before they are reviewed by other experts in the field and published in a medical journal, they started going up and a lot of them started getting coverage. So we got into this new field of preprints versus published studies and, you know, learning that neither one is perfect. And you got to always ask additional sources and experts to see what they think. So 
you know, it's interesting how some of these terms have become common now. A lot of people know about them. A lot of journalists know about them. And, you know, we also learned, I think, and as we have discussed, to not rely heavily on single anecdotes. If somebody posts on Facebook that, oh, my husband died of COVID after getting the vaccine, don't make that a story. (laughs) So just take your time, take a pause, contact experts, and try to vet your sources or the information you're receiving before making it a story. Did you have any concerns about from a health and medical point of view, how r- reporters were covering, you know, maybe false information or alternate facts, as it were, about, you know, medical solutions or treatments or whatever? You know, I think my biggest concern it still stands as somebody who is kind of like in any beat, you know, you sort of gain a level of expertise or knowledge and you learn because you go to conferences, you get your newsletters. My biggest concern still remains coverage of studies that are even preclinical trials, like they're done in laboratories and they're done on animals and they haven't even made it to humans. And those are the kind of studies that still get coverage. I think the most recent example was some research on CBD and how it could I don't know what something with COVID, like fight it, or I can't quite remember exactly what the connection was, but I saw a few headlines by reporters who were not health and medical reporters reporting on this preclinical study that was done in a laboratory on molecules. And of course, you know, if somebody's a marijuana smoker, they could take away the hint that, oh, if I smoke marijuana, I will prevent COVID. And I think that's irresponsible journalism. So that's why I, I, I can't emphasize enough of all these press releases that come to your inbox that might sound really fun and interesting. Really take a moment to make an additional call to an expert in this field and run this by them. Say, what do you think? And you'd be surprised how many times they bring up angles and issues that you didn't think about because none of us are research scientists who are doing this 24-7. So you know, I know we are all under pressure to produce stories, especially in daily newspapers, but really remember your responsibility to the public. And people, unfortunately, read a tweet and read a headline and run with it. They might not make it past the first or second paragraph of your story. So you got to be very careful. Clearly, because um, it goes to the responsibility and and the seriousness of sometimes the, the things that you're covering, the, the impact, and, and you don't want to be somebody who's being a contributor of false information or at least unverified information. As you were working for trade publications and working for the newspapers that you did covering, you know, health, did you have like a list of go-to experts that you, uh, you know, if you came across something that you needed to dig deeper on that you'd go to? It depends on the public. I mean, in the topic and, You know, when I guess my majority of my experience has been, other than the time I was at a trade publication, mostly has been in local papers. And when you're a local reporter, you have your local sources and you get to know the local docs. If you have an academic medical center or um, university that has a medical school, you get to know their public relations folks and some of the experts that are in there. But really the best way to find a go-to or somebody to contact 
is either go to different societies, say American Academy of Pediatrics, if you're writing something about COVID and children, they will, they're usually very good at connecting you with an expert in the field who can talk to you if you can't find somebody locally, or if you don't have anyone locally who can comment on that topic. And also in research studies, if you go to PubMed, which is the part of National Library of Medicine, it has a lot of medical studies, published medical studies listed under. So if you look for a topic, all these studies come up. So you can look at some of the studies and contact the authors of those research studies to ask for comment or find out if they recommend somebody you should you can talk to. Another great place is the reference section of these research studies, because when you read a study, then there is like 20, 30, 40 research reference articles. So you can kind of comb through those and see what kind of other studies have been done and who else you can contact. So Association of Healthcare Journalists is a great resource. If you become a member, you can be a part of a listserv where you can ask for experts if you're in a bind. So there are a lot of places you can find experts if, you know, you kind of strike out locally. So I think that kind of touches on the article that you wrote in December about, you know, finding diverse sources in writing or interviewing nurses. How did that story come about? What was uh, the resource that you created? So I was um, asked actually to speak at a virtual nursing conference and just being there and talking to nurses about, you know, how journalists interact with nurses or why don't they interview nurses more, kind of hearing other nurses and nursing groups talk, like really was interesting to me. And I did sort of realize that as journalists, we don't go to nursing associations as often as we go to medical associations. In the story, I have a long list of different nursing specialty groups and their contact people where, you know, from critical care to nephrology, to neurology, to emergency care that you can contact if you're working on a story to see if there's an expert who can talk to you, not just for nursing and bedside nursing, but also research, because there are a lot of, you know, studies that are done by nurses, and to get their perspective. So, so, you know, why would you go to nursing organizations as opposed to other medical organizations? What, what would you be getting differently? And it's not so much the question of going to one instead of another, but the fact that they all work together, if you think about a hospital, nurses are as much a part of patient care as our other groups. I mean, respiratory therapists are very involved. Just think about all the professions, like say if you're writing about COVID, that are involved in patient care, in addition to, you know, of course, physicians and other groups. I mean, there are PhDs and researchers who are in the hospitals working on different topics. So think about all the hands that go into help. And I know local hospitals, a lot of times try to direct you who you should talk to. So if your local hospital only puts you in touch with the chief medical officer, every time you ask for an interview, go to one of the nursing organizations and try to talk to a nurse, whether it's about the challenge of patient care, about the stress of the health the job right now that we hear about so much, or about, you know, the advancements in medical care. I'm a subscriber to the Journalist Resource Newsletter, which I think is how I, I saw the article that you written about nursing. Tell me a little about, about the, you know, Journalist Resource. You know, what's its mission? What type of information? I mean, obviously, there's resources for journalists, but what type of information is there to help journalists? 
Sure. So our mission is to bridge the gap between journalism and academia. So like our primary goal is to help journalists sort of use scientific research, peer-reviewed studies, especially to inform their reporting. And I think a lot more journalists are actually going to looking for research studies since the pandemic has arrived, because we have seen how much science really (laughs) makes a difference in our everyday lives. So that's, you know, what we do. We look at different topics, say, like COVID related, I can think of, say, like pregnancy and COVID. So, you know, I go look for the most recent studies that are peer reviewed, that are of a decent size, that are published in an academic journal that show what are the outcomes of women who get COVID or women who were vaccinated against COVID versus those who were not, and sort of explain these in a, in a piece and list them. So journalists, if they want, they can just refer to it. You know, we are under Creative Commons. You can republish our stuff or, you know, borrow whatever you want from the stories. At the end of 2021, the staff of the Journalist Resource looked back at the reports they'd done in the previous year, and each of them wrote about the stories and reports they thought impressed them the most. And you had two. One was how racial and ethnic biases are baked into the U.S. tax system. And the other was reporting on scientific failures and holding the science community accountable, five tips for journalists. What was it about these two stories that kind of uh, spoke to you? So the first one about our tax system, really, I thought that was eye-opening to me, especially as a health reporter. You know, I don't know much about our tax system, really. It's not business. is not something I cover every day. And I, you know, read about it. But I thought, you know, in health, we are so aware of disparities and how it affects all sorts of care and delivery, et cetera, access. And it was very interesting to for me to see that the systemic racism that I, we talk about, disparities we talk about, really infiltrates all aspects of our lives, including the tax system. And this piece by my colleague Clark really explains how these disparities affect how folks can build wealth, you know, and it varies by race and ethnicity. And I just for the podcast, I pulled up this piece that sort of stood out to me and it says median wealth in white families, 188,000 compared with 24,000 for black families and 35,000 for Hispanic families. I mean, this is a huge difference. And again, It's another explanation of published studies that can help journalists understand the context of what's happening right now or add context to their stories when they're reporting on, you know, business topics. Yeah. And I know that COVID exposed a lot of the systemic, how systemic racism had put various groups into disadvantaged areas. You know, I was covering Washington, D.C., and there's a whole section of the of the city where the majority of the black population lives that doesn't have a medical, didn't have a hospital, they're building one, but didn't have a hospital, didn't have like a, you know, one of those 24 hour little medical centers that could go in to get a checkup or something, didn't have that available to them in that area. And so you're covering your COVID story. Here's something where there's so many other ways to tell it. And, you know, the tax system and the disparity in, uh, you know, medical resources in the community. And the other one you had was about uh, reporting on scientific failures, which sounds like it would be something that up your line. What did you like about that story? Right. And this one, uh, my colleague Denise Ordway wrote this. And 
I think what this story really explains and highlights is the fact that science is an evolving process. I know, I think a lot of us as humans, by nature, we just want an answer. Is it a yes or no? And science doesn't work that way. We are constantly learning. And as part of that, some of the research that is published is retracted, you know, at times, or is proven wrong. And I think this story really highlights the fact that we need to report on those pieces of research that's been retracted and explain why so our readers understand better about the nuances of scientific process. And I think that's one of the things that we have been grappling with during the pandemic as a society. You know, things change. And right now, things are changing very, very fast. <laughs> so, but if you go back to the basics of wine and chocolate, I mean, we still don't know if these things are good for us or not, and we still keep eating them and drinking them. But, you know, every other year, there is a study that says wine is good for you, dark chocolate is good for you, or no, wine isn't really good for you. So, you know, what is the answer? We don't know, but that's what scientists are there. I mean, you should be very grateful that they are so curious and try to find the answers, but at the same time, explain that when a study gets retracted, why it was retracted, you know, dig a little deeper and emphasize that mistakes are essential to science, you know, and it's a complicated process. And when we do that, I think we can foster and help readers kind of trust the process and understand that when something changes, it's not, doesn't mean that you can't trust scientists, but it's just part of this process. You're on the spectrum of learning something. And just because, yeah, it turns out that that wasn't the case because you didn't have X data, that doesn't mean you know, <laughs> that, that they're trying to fool you or, or everything in, the, in a study or something is, is wrong, but it, it maybe it needs to be looked at and put in context. And, yeah. you know, I was going to add to that, too, the more and more when I listen to other great health and medical journalists and outlets like the Atlantic and the New York Times talk in some of the webinars I've been listening to, there are talking about how less and less they're reporting on a single study that comes out. Rather, they try to put a body of research together where they're doing their reporting because one study doesn't sum everything up and one study doesn't represent our understanding of a single topic. So make sure even if you're at a point where you're, you know, even your local hospital sends out this press release about, oh, we found this blood test that can identify how quickly or how bad your COVID is going to be. Go beyond that one single study, look at the body of literature, talk to other experts and add as much context as you can to inform your readers. I want to kind of wrap up here, but we haven't even had a chance to talk about the Facebook group. <laughs> I, I joined it a few years back when it was founded. And, you know, I find it to be just like an amazing resource, you know, not that I use it, but that, you know, the types of stories that come through and the things you don't even really kind of think about, you know, what in founding the Facebook Uncovering Trauma, what was it you, you were trying to set out to do? So a friend and I started this Facebook group in 2017. And I don't know if you remember back then there were some, I mean, mass shootings never stop, unfortunately, but there were some awful large scale mass shootings. One of them for me was the Pulse nightclub shooting here in Orlando. She covered a church mass shooting in Texas. You know, there was the Las Vegas mass shooting and you know, her and I, she's in, she was in Texas and uh, was in Orlando. And we started just talking about how 
it has affected us and you know we have held on to some objects from the early days of covering those events like little things that people made etc and you know we're sending each other care in newsrooms we're sending each other care packages where back in the day where we were in the newsroom and we thought about starting a facebook group just to have other journalists who may be going through the same things than we were and of course the pandemic hit and the topic stayed more relevant than ever because like a lot of other professions, journals are under a lot of stress. It can be a grim topic to cover day after day and also very stressful. You know, you can't take your foot off the gas. So really our goal is to at least post as many, you know, as, as many useful resources as we can to for journalists. So if they come across it, they know that they're not alone. It's okay to reach out for help. And one of my biggest messages to journalists is just if you don't feel fine, but everybody around you is, around you is fine, it's okay if you don't feel okay. Because everybody reacts differently to stress and trauma. Some people are okay and some people don't take it well and it's fine. So reach out for help, whether it's talking to a colleague, talking to your boss if they're open or, you know, using your company's employee assistance system or if they call it EAP, employee assistance program. I sent you a uh, link for a tip sheet that Dart Center helped me put together. So that lists a lot of different resources journalists can go to to find therapists if they need to. Dart Center for Journalism Trauma is a great resource for journalists to even, you know, learn about how to report on trauma, how to interview trauma survivors without traumatizing them and traumatizing yourself. So there's a lot of great resources on that website that you can look at. So, you know, it's one way I hope I can help other journalists. And again, my biggest thing, since I'm not a mental health professional, it's not dispensing advice. But to let journalists know that this is a real thing that affects us as part of our job and to be aware of it. Don't run yourself ragged, you know? Yeah, it is a really useful resource. And part of it is, you know, as a resource, you know, how do I cover a story that obviously there's trauma around it? But then on the other hand, how do I protect myself? There was a lot of concern you know, in 2020, between COVID and the political protests and, you know, covering Black Lives Matter demonstrations, a lot of talk about, you know, journalists being overloaded with negative information or stressful information. It's important that people take time and look for help and, and recognize that they need help. That, for me, is what I found most useful in the Facebook group is seeing that, you know, some of the things people post and, and a little bit of the discussion. And you can look at you know, Twitter, where a lot of journalists spend their time and you, you see somebody posting something and, you, and you're like, oh, yeah, I wonder, maybe that person needs to, to step back a second, think about what's going on in their job or in their life. And, you know, so any opportunity to share this type of information is great, which is, I guess this is my fan, <laughs> my fan <laughs> me being fanish toward the very good resource out there. Nassim, we could probably talk a really long time about all the things that, you know, how health and medical care as topics that the journals can cover, but also the resources that are available to them. We could probably talk for another hour or so on that, but I do want to wrap up. What are you going to be working on in the, the new year? I mean, now that you know, we're recording this in at the end of January, what, what do you see as maybe some of the big medical stories, healthcare stories coming up? Well, I guess we'll see what COVID brings. There's always new angles to this pandemic. 
So we'll be more focused on that. I'm always looking at how disparities in healthcare affect people and what are some of the solutions to address them, who's doing something to address them. So looking at a how-to or the solutions angle is another important thing. Um, And, you know, mental health is another angle that, especially after the pandemic, has affected, I think, all of us in the society. And seeing what kind of research is coming that in that regard would be another thing I'm keeping an eye on. Nassim, thank you for being on the podcast. It was great talking to you. Best of luck in 2022. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Lemio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.